Hi, I'm Elijah Donaldson. I've been attending NBC Church for about seven years now, and I'll be reading from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, what, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, now that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that ye may cure him of his leprosy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, Beautiful, cool morning. I saw 49 degrees on my car when I was coming in. I was like, wow. I mean, God is good, amen? After a a summer of heat, we get to enjoy this kind of weather. and, And it, you know, the thing that I know is that I would not enjoy the blessing of God if it weren't for the difficulties that we experience in life. And then when we get the blessing, we don't miss it. It, we, we see it right away. It's awesome. Our God is good. Well, I want you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. And we're going to talk today about this story here that you just read. We're going to go all the way to verse 14 uh, and just talk through the passage. It's an incredible story. And the focus is going to be a little different than what you would imagine. Uh, Finding our place. We're finishing up that series. This is the last message in that series. Finding your place. And when we find our place, the place is not just about a place. It's about an attitude. It's about finding the right place for our hearts to be in the midst of that place. Sometimes we don't get a choice about that place. In the story today... The little girl did not get that choice. She found herself in a place that she uh, did not expect. And we're going to focus on her life during this message. We typically, when we've read this story before, I've heard preaching on this passage, we, we look at Naaman, or Naaman, depending on how you want to pronounce it. If you're from Texas, it's probably not Naaman. Uh, may even be one syllable if you can do that. But, uh, and then the little girl, and we typically focus on Elisha, and that's usually where the focus is. But I want us to look at this little girl. She's got an amazing testimony, a testimony that's powerful. So as we think about this, she, she didn't get to choose that place. She was in an imperfect place. She was in a place where she didn't necessarily want to be against her will. She was there. 
And what I find is, is if we're waiting for that perfect place so that we can plug in, and that's the perfect place, and it's a perfect ministry, or if it's a perfect, you know, giftedness, and you think, well, I, I don't know if, I was talking to a, a guy in the, in the lobby uh, between the services, and uh, he said, well, I don't even know if I have a gift, right? I mean, sometimes you feel that way. I, I've sometimes wondered that myself. What is my gift, and how do you figure that out, and all those different kinds of things, if you're looking for the perfect place, you'll never pull the trigger. You'll never get involved in a ministry. You'll never find your place because your heart's not in the right place. And so this morning's message is about getting our heart in the right place. Because if you want to look for a place that's perfect, you've come to the wrong place. This place is not perfect. Mansfield Bible Church is not perfect. I'm not perfect. And in fact, when I started Mansfield Bible Church, I did a landscape. Yeah, you hear the amen, right? Hey. It took me I'm a little slow, but I just picked up on, hey, wait a minute. And now I'm thinking, who said that? I'm looking around. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I look at that and I think, when I started Mansfield Bible Church, I looked at all these other churches and I thought, man, this one's got this problem and that one's got that problem and this has this big problem and four others on that one, you know. And, and, uh, and so I thought, I'm going to start the perfect church, right? And then you guys showed up. <laughs> amen. <laughs> amen. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the thing is, is the place was already messed up when I showed up. There's always... Something you can find that's wrong. If that's what you're looking for, you'll find it here. You'll find our warts. We got them. In fact, I love this story, and I know some of you have heard me tell this story before, but it's, to me, a powerful story about the, the guy who was mowing his yard, and the house across the street's for sale, and somebody pulls in and says, hey, you know, I looked at that house across the street, but I want to talk to you. What's this neighborhood like? And he goes, well, what was your last neighborhood like? And he goes, oh, man, we didn't get along at all. I mean, we, we were mad at each other. We didn't, we'd, we'd yell at each other. I mean, we were, you know, we even had a couple of people trying to sue each other. I mean, we, we hated each other. And he said, well, I think you're going to find this neighborhood just like the one you left. <laughs> and then another guy came up. He was weed eating by that time, you know, and, and somebody pulls up and says, uh, you know, uh, I was looking at that house across the street. Tell me what this neighborhood's like. And he says, well, he says, what was your last neighborhood like? And he says, oh, man, we loved each other. We made pies for each other. We were mowing each other's grass. I mean, we, we just, we took care of one another. And he says, I think you'll find that this neighborhood's just like your last one. Because <laughs> you find what you're looking for. And you find what you bring to the thing. And here's the deal. If you find a weakness at Mansfield Bible Church then maybe God's laying it on your heart to do something about it. Amen. Amen? Because you're the one that sees the weakness and you're the one that cares about it being different. But instead of complaining about it, maybe you're supposed to be the person God has led to be for such a time as this, as we looked at with Esther, right? And so our heart attitude is so crucial to the process. How our heart is and how we look at life, we either see the negative or we see the negative as opportunity. We see the lack and we see the lack as opportunity. We see it as a, as a chance for us to get involved in a way that we never thought before. And here's the thing about it. Many times there's no glory in that position. There really isn't. If you're looking for the glory position, there's not very many of them. But here's what I found and here's, the, here's what I think is the crux of this passage, God asks us to do simple things. 
God asks us to do humble things. They may never remember your name. This little girl, she has no name in Scripture. She has no name. I mean, I've looked, I've looked, I looked at some of the other, and tried to see if there was a, another, you know, in Chronicles, sometimes they'll tell a story that you see in Kings, and so I went to Chronicles, and she's, Naaman's not mentioned anywhere else, and she's not mentioned anywhere else. And so actually, I gave her a name. The word in Hebrew for girl is Nara, or Naara, two A's. And so I decided I'm going to call her Nara. This is Nara's story. And I think that, that, that you'll see how crucial and how critical she is to the story, and yet she has no name. Nobody remembered. The person who wrote it didn't remember what her name was. And yet if it wasn't for Nara, we wouldn't have a story here. It would stop at that point. Of a, it, it would stop at this first verse when it says, but he was a leper, end of story. It wouldn't have been a story. There would have been no story. She found her place, and it was a simple place, and it wasn't a natural or normal place for her to be. And I'm, I'm blown away by this young girl. So let's start back up, and, and, and we'll find that the way that this story is written, this account, and I say, I use the word story, it doesn't mean it's fictitious. It was an actual account. It happened, and it's recorded here. But we see and we meet different people almost in every other verse. The first person we meet is Naaman or Naaman. His name means fair or grace. And yet he's the commander of an army, not grace, not necessarily fair. The commander of the army of the king of Syria. The Assyrians were the ones that eventually took Israel and took them into captivity and spread them all over the Assyrian Empire and then brought people into uh, the, the northern, to that kingdom, Israel, and it would, in the New Testament times was known as Syria, I mean, known as Samaria. The, Samarit, the good Samaritan, they were people that, that had a different uh, synchristic uh, religious system. And so they didn't end up well. They ended up following after God, Yahweh, and then also their other gods. And so it's one of the reasons why in the New Testament you see them as being despised is because they're, they're trying to live uh, in two worlds, in two religious worlds. Naaman, he's the commander. He's second in command behind the king of Assyria, or king of Syria which was Ben-Hadad. He says he was a great man, with his master and in high favor because he was, uh, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. The Lord, notice that it's capitalized, all caps. What does that mean? It's the tetragrammaton. It's the four consonants for the name of God, Yahweh, or translated also Jehovah. The Lord had, Yahweh had given victory to Syria. And notice what they're doing. They're running raids on Israel, the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl, verse 2. God was involved in that somehow. He was allowing that to happen. And you think, wait a minute. I, you know, God, God doesn't condone slavery. I just want you to know that. In fact, there was a part of me that didn't want to preach this passage about this little girl who became a slave. And I was thinking, ah, I don't like that part. I don't like that part of the story. Scripture doesn't condone slavery. But it just records and reports what happened to this girl and her response to her situation. 
This guy was a great man, powerful man, second in command. I mean, it's really important to the story to understand that. We miss the story if we miss that. Because when you think about this, this young girl, it says little girl in the, in the ESV, young girl in the NIV, um, and then uh, you know, you'll find different versions have different readings on that. The, the word probably refers to a young girl. How old was that be? In fact, I had a fun time doing Bible study on this and just looking for observations. What do I know about this little girl? Well, I know something just from this phrase, a little girl from the land of Israel. I know that she was young. Probably, as I looked at the passage, she's old enough to know and have learned the Assyrian language or the Syrian language because she's communicating with her mistress. She said to her mistress, so she was able to speak a second language, probably spoke Hebrew and so she was bilingual at least. She was uh, old enough to be at least that, so I figured she's got to have been, you know, when I was thinking about somebody who also remembers uh, about this prophet in Israel, which he talks about a little bit later. So she was old enough to remember that, and so maybe 8 to 10 at least is the youngest end of it. 13 was typically an age when they would see, be seen as an adult, so somewhere between 8 and 13 years of age. She was from the land of Israel, so she was Jewish. And she was from the northern kingdom that had no good kings. Out of, out of the uh, 19 kings that, were, uh, that you'll find in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, zero of them were good kings. It says none of them were good. And so she, was, she didn't ever have an example of a good leader. We also know that she was in the service and in the house of the second in command. That happens, we see in scripture. Daniel ends up being uh, second or third in command at different times. We see uh, in Babylon, we see uh, Joseph uh, in uh, Egypt uh, uh, becoming second in command. I mean, we see God raising up people who would, would uh, be in these different countries, these different cultures, and, and they would be people who would have be around people of influence and they would be influencing them for God. When they took that opportunity, they would influence people for the Lord. And we see that from her. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord, verse 3, would that my Lord were, the, or were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he could cure him of his leprosy. She has compassion Compassion for the person who is really her captor. Now, it did cause me to raise a question. Oh, maybe this is Stockholm Syndrome. Are you familiar with that? Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, in Stockholm, there was, a, I believe, a bank robbery that went wrong, and so they took hostages. And then the hostages began to feel compassion for their captors and began to defend their position and would not go against them in court. And you kind of go, wow, that's bizarre. Uh, Patty Hearst, uh, some think that that happened to her with the uh, uh, Liberation Army. I forget the first word there. Huh? Yes, that's it. And so you, uh, you, you look at that and you see, you know, the, some think, oh, that's a Stockholm. So I, I, I ask myself the question, is this Stockholm syndrome with this little girl feeling sorry for her captor? No, it's not. Because in those cases, they all defended even the position of their captors. She doesn't do that. 
She doesn't say, oh, well, your gods are going to be able to defend you. She tells him the truth. Oh, well, you know that place that you attacked, that, 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 uh, where you got me from, uh, that, uh, that you did against my will, that, I mean, she could go, you know, you could go on. Uh, uh, it's from there that you need to go to get cured. She wasn't embracing their ideology. She was staying true to the God of Israel. She was a woman of faith. We see from this statement here. She was probably uh, born in, and lived in the area of Dan or up in that area because Assyria bordered Israel in the northern part and it was probably the, those areas along the edge of Israel, northern Israel, where, um, where they did their raids. They would run in, do their raid, come back out. So they wouldn't go very deep. They would just kind of go shallowly, you know, grab a few captives or whatever else they wanted and then come back. Interestingly, the, the uh, tribe of Dan had waterfront, coastal front, oceanfront property. Think about that. Oceanfront property, and they decided, no, I think we'll go up here because it's nice and green and it's lush and, and the cattle are fatter up here. And, and so we're going to go up here. And we're going to be in the northernmost part of Israel and we're going to take this city. Uh, and, and when they did... Every attacking nation came from the, from the north, attacked Dan first. God was going to spare them of that, but no. they. And so now they're in these border skirmishes. I'm guessing she was probably, possibly of the tribe of Dan. That part is still agrarian to this day up in the northern part, the Galilee, when we go there in 2024, if you go with me, you'll get a chance to see it's still very underdeveloped. It's still very much like it was in biblical times. Not a lot of stuff there. The, the bigger cities and stuff are in other places. Tel Aviv and Jerusalem today. And so she was in an agrarian society and now she's thrust into Damascus, most likely into uh, the height in one of the largest cities of its day and the hustle and bustle of a city. And she could be very angry in fact, with her master having leprosy, and we're not sure what kind of leprosy that was actually. There's a number of different types. Hansen's disease is, is more, a more common thing now. But uh, the, the symptoms of Hansen's disease was never described in any ancient literature. So we're not sure that it was that. But we do know it's a skin disease. We do know that they could die of it. And so she could have easily said, you know what? I'm kind of glad my... Naaman is suffering. I'm, I can't wait for him to die. She could have thought that, right? And she wasn't buying into their system and, and their, their gods and any of that stuff. And, and, and she did learn the language, but she, she could have easily said, God, you just take his life. You've already judged him, and I think you're going to take his life, and I'm not going to intervene. Instead, she shows compassion. Tells us a lot about this, this girl, Nara. And so here she is willing to speak up. So she's courageous. She's willing to say, it's a simple thing that she does to show faith in the God of Israel in the midst of her captors. She could have been punished for that. They could have said, our gods are better than your God because look how we defeat you every time. God is on our side. We see that in, in this, even in this biblical account. He's on our side. He's fighting for us. I mean, he could have gone any number of directions, but what does he do? It says, so Naaman went in, verse 4, and told his Lord. So he told Ben-Adad, 
Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, go in haste, even uh, uh, can be translated, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Because you think about it, this was craziness. You've been attacking an area, and now you're going to go in and go, hey, I could use your help. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, right? Oh, this is going to go well. And so he takes a lot of stuff. Look at what he takes with him. It says, so he went taking with him 10 talents of silver. Remember a talent, 75 pounds, 10 of them, 750 pounds of silver. So about 170K worth of silver in today's numbers. And 6,000 shekels of gold, about 150 pounds of gold, about 3 million worth. And then you kind of go, and 10 changes of clothing. What? <laughs> 10 changes of clothing? I mean, you look in your closet today and you go, I got lots of clothes, you know? I need to pull them out and, and, and weed through them and give 10 changes of clothing away. I mean, we just, we all have the, all these. So we have no concept of what it's like to be in a place where you got no extra clothes. In Tanzania, in the orphanage, we noticed that kids were wearing the same clothing every day. They didn't have 10 changes of clothes. My mom, when she was growing up, she told me she had three dresses. One for church that she only wore for church and then two others that she alternated between. People don't have all that we have and so it's hard for us to, to but, but this was an extravagant gift because he brings these 10 changes of clothing because they would have been royal clothing. They would have had the, had the, the blue color uh, of royalty or the purple color of royalty and the reason that it was so valuable was because they had to find these snails and get the, the, the ink or the dye from them and it was expensive process. So only kings had it. And in some cases, uh, people in ancient times, just to show their extravagance, would go to a wedding and change their clothes 10 times. I mean, that just seems like a bother to me, but, you know. But can you imagine that? And so this is an extravagant gift. And he was hoping to buy healing from this prophet. Reminds me in Acts of the guy that was hoping to buy, you know, the Holy Spirit, basically. He says, um, and he brought the letter, verse 6, to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you to, to Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. He thought he was provoking war. He thought the guy's coming in saying, hey, if you can't heal him, then we're going to come in and take this place by force or whatever it was. He let his fear control him. Great contrast between him and this girl that has no power. He has great power and he's afraid and does nothing. He could have said, we have a, we have a man in my own city. We find out that Elisha's got a house in Samaria. Samaria was, was uh, at that time, the capital city of that area that we later call Samaria. We think of the whole area north of, of Jerusalem as, as this area of Samaria. But there was a town of Samaria. It was the capital of that area. That was where the king would have been. That's where Elisha, in his own city, he never mentions him. He never says, oh, we got a guy. I got a guy. This guy's going to, 
He doesn't say that. It's the, it's the girl that says, hey, I know a guy. Now, we know from Luke chapter 4 and from Jesus' lips, not a single person was cured of leprosy except. You know who the except is? This guy, Naaman. He was cured of leprosy when nobody else believed. Remember, we're talking about a kingdom where they had no good kings, no good influences, except for the prophets and Elisha, one of those. And so he misread the situation and he didn't take advantage of the opportunity to bring the guy to God. But it's Elisha who does. It says, but when Elisha, verse 8, the man of God, and we see his name being called that through the text, the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. He sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? In other words, you're, 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 you're missing it. You're missing the opportunity. It's right before you and you're missing it because your attitude is wrong. Your heart is wrong in the wrong place. You're afraid. You're not walking with the Lord. You're missing it. And then he says, let him come to now to me. Why? That he may know. Here's the purpose. That he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. That he may know about God. That he may know about our God. Let him come to me. So he did. Verse 9. So Naaman came with the horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Stood at the door? Why would he do that? Why would you go to somebody's house? I mean, he's got the chariots, the horses, a whole entourage. I mean, I'm sure the whole neighborhood was talking. Hey, what's going on at Elisha's house? You know, this crazy old prophet, he's got this entourage of people. It's just amazing. And they're bringing all sorts of gifts. This is, a, this is the most incredible thing we've ever seen in our area. So they come to Elisha's house and then he stands at the door. Now, I'm guessing that Elisha's house was not very fancy. I mean, prophets didn't, you know, uh, probably have a lot. And so you imagine a very simple home or maybe even a very, a very poor home. So he has this home. Maybe Naaman didn't want to go in because it was poverty and he didn't, it was beneath him. Maybe he didn't go in for, I mean, you can posit a number of reasons of why he didn't go in, but for some reason he stood by the door, maybe out of respect and being waited to be invited in. And then you read verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger to him. What? I mean, read that again. If, if Elisha sent a messenger to him, if this was your guest, second in command of Assyria, given a, a letter by the king of Israel to come and see you at your house, you'd probably clean the windows and the floor and you know, pick up your stuff and and then you'd dress in your finest clothing and, and you would show up and you'd be very honored and proud to be able to... And Elisha sends someone else. We know that his, his, uh, the servant that was with him was Gehazi. So I'm guessing this was Gehazi. He sends Gehazi to go talk to, to Naaman. And he says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. 
and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. In other words, I'm not coming to talk to you. I'm not going to even be with you. You know, I'm just sending my servant because why? Was he, was he somehow treating Naaman very casually? Was he treating him poorly? Was he just mad at them because of all the raids that they had on Israel? Did he have something against him? I mean, why didn't he show up? I think there's a simple reason why he didn't show up, and we're going to see it later in the passage. But he wanted him to see, I'm not a miracle man. God is the miracle-working God. It's not me. And in fact, I'm not even showing up. I'm going to send my servant to tell you the story. And we see that Naaman expected something different. In verse 11, it says, But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of his Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. I mean, he was expecting this great ceremony. Okay, you know, come up here, you're going to be healed, and waves his hand and calls out up on God and maybe has a, a music playing in the background or whatever, and he's, you know, going to heal the guy. He's expecting this great pomp and circumstance. He's expecting, hey, I'm a man of position, and I'm expecting that, that you're going to treat me as such, that you're going to come out and greet me at your home and not leave me standing here talking to your servant. And you're not going to, you know, you're going to do something significant? He says, after all, I mean, it doesn't say it in the text, but after all, he's got to go back and tell people what happened, right? And he wants to say, man, you wouldn't believe this guy. He was incredible. He waved his hand over me. The cure, I mean, immediately it was all gone. The leprosy was, was done. And he's telling me to go into this muddy Jordan River. I don't know if you've ever seen the Jordan. You can in 2024. <laughs> Just saying. But it's not a real wide river. I mean, you think about the mighty Mississippi, and you think, wow, I bet the Jordan's like the mighty Mississippi. Nope. It is muddy, but it's not wide. So you got this small, I mean, maybe the width of this room at some places. And you kind of go, wow, this isn't that much. And it's muddy. You can't see your feet. I mean, I can go down to San Antonio, the Frio River, and I can see my feet in the water, right? And you can't see your feet. You can't see anything. It's muddy. And in fact, that's what he says. He, he looks at the same thing. He says, are not the Abana and the Parpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them? Uh, uh, and be clean. I mean, because think about it. Those two rivers that he mentions, big and they're clean water. You can see your feet. You would think that if you're going to wash away leprosy, you use something that's clean, right? Not something that's muddy. And not 32 miles away, you were expecting this big ceremony and, and you tell somebody, oh, uh, go to that little small river over there and it's muddy and just dip yourself seven times. You're done. You're good. And it's your servant that's telling them that. I mean, you can imagine how ticked you would be. And he was angry. He was furious. He says, could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away, or turned and went away in a rage. 
He was furious with this whole setup. It's like, this guy must be a fraud. He must be a, a fake. I can't believe that he would make me do this, that he would treat me in such a manner, in such a poor manner. And then his servants. You see, we met Naaman in verses 1 and Two, verse 1, and then we met uh, Nara in verse 2, and then we meet uh, uh, Ben-Hadad in verse 4, and then we meet the king of Israel in verse 6, and then we meet Elijah in verse 8, verse eight and then we see Naaman again in 11, and then but his servants, his servants show up, or they're there, and they came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Can you imagine Naaman's look at that moment. Ugh. Rolling his eye. What do you mean a great word? Can you, you, you heard the same message I heard, right? Yeah, we heard it. It says, will you not do it? I think that's the question for us. Will you not do it? It's a simple thing that you're being asked to do. I mean, God deals with the simple things. You look at Adam and Eve... It was a simple thing that he asked him to do. You can eat all the trees, just not that one. Simple thing. This girl, Nara, did a simple thing that she was asked by the Lord to do. I feel like she was led by the Lord to do. To express her faith in the God she loved. We're asked to do simple things too. Have you ever found yourself finding something and you kind of go, oh God, you're not, Lord, you're not going to ask me to do this, are you? I mean, this, this is simple. I mean, anybody could do this or, or, or you find yourself, nobody's going to notice. Exactly. That's the point. <laughs> Humility's hard for us to do. It's hard when you don't even, people don't even remember your name. There's been times where, I'm, where the Lord has led me to do something. I'm like, Lord, I don't want to do that. I don't want to pick up that telephone and, and make that call. I don't want to be around that person. I don't want to go and do that ministry. I don't feel very good at that. I, I, and we, we give all these lists of excuses. And essentially we're telling the Lord, no. At those times that I feel like saying that, my response instead is this, if I'm in my right mind. And that is, Jesus, you died for me. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. No matter what it is, no matter what it means for me, I'll do what you ask me to do. No matter if anybody ever remembers my name, if, no matter if anybody remembers that I did whatever it is. You see, it's that attitude of the heart that's crucial to finding our place because our place is not the most important thing it's our heart going into it and if I go into it with this stinky heart then my actions my heart my language everything is going to reflect that and here was a a young girl who had every reason to have that kind of heart, to have a bitterness about her, and you don't see that in her. You see a girl of faith who's willing to trust the Lord and to speak up and to, and to, and to invest in someone that she might have been better off if they weren't around. 
And so I think about my own life. I think about our lives. Are we going to do what God asks? Will we not do it? The prophet has spoken. The word of God has spoken. God has led you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Yeah. So he went down. And I think there's a double meaning here, double entendre here. He went down to the place, but he also humbled himself. And dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. According to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Don't miss that phrase. I think the little girl and the little child was not an accident in this passage. And he was clean. Now I told you we'd stop at verse 14. I want to go one more verse. Verse 15 says, Then he returned to the man of God, Elisha. He and all his companies are, they're all back. And he came and stood before him and said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He just renounced all the gods of Syria. And what was Elisha's purpose? That he may know. And here he knows. And it was, it was Elisha working together with a girl he never met. A girl that was now in Damascus, Syria. Who took a step of faith. God uses different people in our lives and we never know how he's going to use them and, and he causes us to work together with others so you have a gift and you do that small thing and you think I have no idea how this is going to help anybody and you don't know there's an Elijah over here and that Elijah and you working together in the body of Christ is going to make a powerful difference amen I know I've told this story before, but it's just so powerful in my life. I thought for the first couple of years of my ministry, which was uh, uh, in the Arlington Independent School District, I was a teacher. I couldn't say a lot in the public school about my faith unless somebody asked me a question. And, 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 and I got a chance once, uh, after I went to Haiti one summer to share with a student or a few students about my, my experience in my ministry. I know for those two years, I didn't feel like that anybody was impacted by my ministry to their lives. And so I, I looked at those in my life as two wasted years. That was a kind of when I was kind of looking at the story of my life, thinking, well, uh, kind of, that was a waste. I don't know what that was all about. And then she contacted me to let me know, hey, uh, uh, I was a student of yours once and, and your sharing about Haiti impacted me. What God was doing there, in fact, it set my heart on fire for missions. She said, I married a, a worship, uh, a man who was involved in worship and worship pastor and, and we had worship camps every summer for, for 30 years. About a thousand kids every summer went through these camps. And I was thinking, wow, 30,000 kids. And she said, six different countries. Wow. So God pulled back the curtain and showed me, I just want you to see, you just shared, you did a simple thing. You just shared about what God, what I was doing in Haiti. And now 30,000. And how many of them became worship leaders in their churches? I don't know. 
So then add to that. I have no idea how many churches, how many individuals impacted by that. My mind was blown. I thought it was two wasted years and God says, let me show you something. I'm doing way more than you think I am. And then she told me that when I, when I uh, she said, you know, when we tried out for chairs, you said, you know, just, she said, I was always so nervous. She said, just relax, play big, you know, play like you're in a concert hall, like Carnegie Hall. And she said, I had, didn't have the heart to tell you I didn't know where Carnegie Hall was <laughs> or what it was. And then she said, tonight my son is playing in Carnegie Hall with Lauren Daigle. He's part of her band. So this is the last night he's playing with her because he's going with a new group called For King and Country. Mind really blown. Goes from thousands to millions? I don't know. The reach? And God's let me know. You did a simple thing. All I ask you to do, and I really relate to this, this Nara. I just did a simple thing. A non-glorious thing. Common thing. Just lived my faith. Spoke my faith. And so I think, what is it that God's asking you to do? It doesn't have to be something grandiose. It may be in the background somewhere. But without you in the background, the Elisha never happens. The healing never happens. The story stops. God has you in in the place that he has you for such a time as this, as Esther. He has you to, to bring people to Jesus as Andrew. He has you to just speak the simple message like Nara. Don't look for all the perfect ministries. Just do what God has asked you to do. And then watch him work. Because one day he's going to pull back that curtain. And we're all going to be blown away. Amen. Father, we come to you. And we thank you that you are God. We thank you that you use the likes of us. The simple things that we do that we don't even remember. You remember. And you use. And you transform our world around us. Lord, may we find our place and may that place be a place with a great heart. Not a complaining heart, not a griping heart, not looking at all the negative things, but looking at the opportunities that those present. And may we step with courage and boldness into that position that you have for us. And may you use us, Father. I can't wait to see your hand at work as you work in and among us as you work in the places that we go. Lord, I thank you for all that you do for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.